We have a very exciting program today, so we're going to get started. I want to first welcome you to today's program, and thank you all for joining us. I'm Professor Larry Jacobs. I direct the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. Tremendous uh, honor today. We've got um, former Vice President Walter Mondale with us. Uh, we've been working together for uh, more than 15 years teaching a course on the Constitution and national security and doing programs like this. And we're joined by one of our favorites, Norm Ornstein, um, who was born in Minnesota. He graduated with an undergraduate degree from the University of Minnesota at the age of 18. And uh, folks still talk about that. Um, he's been a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute uh, for many years and is now an emeritus scholar uh, there. He's done as well a lot of work in Washington across party lines, uh, perhaps most famously the McCain-Feingold campaign finance uh, reform was um, in a lot of ways engineered by Norm Ornstein and something that people still yearn to get back to. Um, with his collaborator Tom Mann, he's written a series of books that kind of track the arc of what's happening in our country. In 2008, uh, Tom Mann and Norm Ornstein published The Broken Branch. And then four years later, they published It's Even Worse Than It Looks, colon, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism. Wow, that was prescient. Um, so let's jump into this. Um, Mr. Mondale, I wanna start out um, by um, uh, asking you, uh, you've said, over the many years you've been uh, both involved in government, uh, leading investigations and commenting on them, that you have to read the page before you turn it. Uh, as we speak, the uh, Senate is taking up the uh, trial of, um, of Donald Trump uh, for impeachment and, the, and Trump's lawyers are saying that there's no need for this, it's unconstitutional and, and anyway, there doesn't appear to be enough senators to convict uh, Trump. Is this a waste of time? Let, let me ask Norm that question because he, he understands it. So my answer to that would be no, it's not a waste of time. What we saw happening, and it wasn't just on January 6th, the focus is gonna be of course on those horrific events. And I must tell you that, you know, watching it from my vantage point in Washington, a mile or so from the Capitol and a place that I have revered, um, I, you know, all the years that I've been here, every time I would drive down Pennsylvania Avenue and see that dome, my heart would skip a beat uh, that I could be a part of that process and watching it being ravaged. But going back weeks before when the president continued to, President Trump continued to say that the election had been stolen and was rigged and then talked about January 6th when uh, all of the uh, members of the House and Senate would convene in a joint session to certify the electoral votes and telling people to go to Washington and it was going to be wild, he said, and all the things that led up to it. We have never seen anything like this. This is a president who openly called for insurrection uh, against uh, an election that by every standard more than 60 court cases, including some with Trump uh, nominated and appointed judges uh, with Republican election officials saying that it was as free and fair an election as 
they could recall or that we have had. And then having people killed, uh, police officers maimed uh, and worse, you can't let this go by. And the only vehicle to deal with it at this point effectively is an impeachment trial. The impeachment trial began while he was still president, the uh, process of impeachment in the House. Uh, there is a lot of precedent and a lot of legal scholars, including conservative ones like Charles Cooper, who make it clear that it's perfectly appropriate and histor historical precedents to have a trial after one has left office to bar that individual from uh, running or serving uh, again. And more than anything else though, Larry and uh, uh, Mr. Vice President, I think it is that we have to set a standard that says this is wrong so that future presidents don't say the field is open for me. I can contest an election that I've lost. I can use the powers of the presidency to incite violence. And uh, more importantly than anything else, perhaps, anything that I do in the lame duck period of my presidency, I'm home free because it's too late. So there's ample reason to move forward with this. And I believe ample reason to take a stand against this kind of behavior. Uh, Vice President Mondale, I, I assume you agree with that? Yeah, I do, I do. You, you were around um, during the uh, era when Lyndon Johnson sent half a million troops to Vietnam. And there was of course a tremendous backlash in the streets. You were there when Richard Nixon uh, was um, uh, really chased out of office in a bipartisan way. How would you compare where we are today with, let's say, Richard Nixon and what you've seen in the past? Does this, does this look familiar or is it really worse in some ways? Patty, can you unmute Mr. Mondale, please? There you go, sir. I think it's worse uh, by far. Uh, people seem to lose their sense of um, dignity, sense of self-worth, the importance of the argument, of listening to the other person gets lost in all of this. Uh, I'm hoping we'll find our way here now in the next uh, few months, um, maybe with uh, you there. Norm, we'll... we'll teach him a lesson. Um, Norm, I want to jump to a topic that Mr. Mondale's worked on for many years, which is filibuster. And there's an argument made by progressives that it's time to get rid of the filibuster. It's just being used by Republicans to stop democratic legislation. Is it time to get rid of the filibuster? And if not, why not? So I think we need changes in the rules. Um, because what's happened is the norms have been shattered uh, over the last 15 years, basically. If you look at what happened with the filibuster rule that uh, Vice President Mondale was involved with when the change was made in 1975, it worked quite well. I mean, everybody's going to be frustrated from time to time, but the fact is that it was uh, filibusters were largely reserved for issues of great national significance, and they were used very rarely. And that changed uh, basically in the last couple of years of George W. Bush's tenure, but in particular through 
uh, Barack Obama's. And it became used as uh, the term that uh, Tom Mann and I used was a weapon of mass obstruction, used on routine matters, used on every bill, because you can soak up an enormous amount of time on the floor, used to block as much as you could and delegitimize things along the way. And instead of having the filibuster operate so that it was actually reinforcing good norms, you know, getting members of the Senate to say, you know what, it's better if we can get uh, a supermajority because we can get broad leadership consensus. And I remember when uh, one of my mentors and friends, Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, we don't make major changes in social policy without broad leadership consensus. That's how they get sold to Americans and the filibuster helped bring that. But when you shatter the norms, and I believe that Mitch McConnell is um, a major perpetrator of all of this, you have to think about whether the rules serve a good purpose or a bad purpose. So um, as uh, Al Franken, the former Senator, uh, and I wrote in the Star Tribune uh, just a couple of days ago, there are ways of changing the rules without eliminating completely uh, the, the notion of a supermajority. And there are ways of doing it that return to what I think was the original ethos of the filibuster, that it's used by a minority only for an issue of great national significance and where they're willing to make enormous sacrifices to make their point of view known and to share it with the public as a whole. And that's been lost and uh, we can bring it back. Um, but I'd be reluctant to eliminate uh, the nature of Rule 22 entirely. Um, I think we need adjustments though. Mr. Monda, when you were a senator, you uh, led the charge to uh, keep the filibuster, but to lower the number of votes needed from 67 down to 60. And you argued um, that the great uh, power of the Senate is to have a debate, get the country involved and really think through these issues. Um, do you think the filibuster still has a place I, I do, but I, on the revised basis that you're describing, I don't, I don't think that the old uh, filibuster has a mechanism for paralyzing public discussion is justified at all. And the only, only people that wanted that are hardliners, say, from the South that just wanted to paralyze everything and then uh, have the uh, um, House, lower House, Senate um, approve it. I don't, I don't agree with that at all. I think we should have um, what I just described. And I, I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, this is a big debate that we're having in Washington maybe a little bit under the radar screen, unless you're a real Politico type, um, yeah. but it's gonna be in front of us shortly. Um, and what you're hearing today is something that is an alternative to keeping the filibuster as it is, which is Mitch McConnell's position and the position of progressives who say, let's just get rid of it. Um, and I think this is a very important, uh, I would describe it as an alternative or middle position 
Norm Ornstein, I want to come to the series of books you wrote with Tom Mann, um, starting in 2008, and then um, the even more harsh indictment of Congress in 2012. You talked, both of you talked in, in your books about dysfunction. Would that be the term and the analysis you provide today to what you're seeing in Washington? I think it may be too mild, Larry. You know, it, when we wrote uh, The Broken Branch and then uh, when we followed with It's Even Worse Than It Looks, uh, a, a part of it was that our parties had become polarized and they were behaving more like parliamentary parties, uh, coherent in ideology and oppositional in nature. And that doesn't work very well in our political system um, where there are gonna be so many places where you're gonna to have to find some bipartisan agreement or especially if you have divided government, you end up with complete uh, gridlock and you lose that sense of legitimacy uh, as well. But we've gone beyond that. And I think the, the point that we made, especially uh, in 2012, and I, I wanna preface this by saying that, you know, through my entire career, I've worked with Republicans and Democrats. And you know, growing up in Minnesota um, during an era where uh, there were just as many heroes of public service on the Republican side, well, maybe not quite as many, um, but plenty on the Republican side as there were on the, the Democratic side. I've said many times that when I was an undergraduate, we would meet with uh, the political science department uh, with different public officials. Um, you know, I would meet with the Republicans and say, boy, these are really terrific people trying to do the, the right thing. And uh, that's been lost. And what's happened, and we you know, give a lot of the onus to uh, Newt Gingrich, is that there was a deliberate effort to turn simple polarization where you can work together, uh, even if you have different points of view, but understand there are common problems and there's a need to try to solve them. Uh, to tribalism. And that's been just, just accelerated at a dramatic pace in the last number of years. And we're at a very difficult point. And we're at a point where as January 6th shows us, uh, those divisions where you look at people on the other side as being enemies trying to destroy our way of life. And you look at the number of weapons that exist out there and the number of people willing to use violence and the social media that can bring a group of people together into a community that uh, legitimizes those things or that can organize. And it's a frightening thing. So we've gone beyond dysfunction, I think, to a truly troubling time. And how we get out of it, I do think that Joe Biden is the right person in the right place at the right time. Uh, somebody with a genuine desire to be the president for all of us and with a level of empathy that is rare among human beings, much less among people uh, you know, in high elected office. But it's just not going to be easy in any way, shape, or form to make those uh, changes uh, that we need. And the changes are cultural. Uh, we need structural changes to help change the culture. But you know, I I'm remain deeply troubled. I do think that, you know, we have an opportunity now to maybe address some of our big national problems that are COVID related and go way beyond it. But uh, it's gonna be so hard to create this ethos in the country again, uh, that we're all Americans first. 
Um, Norm, I want to ask you about a few rays of hope. Um, you've uh, written and you've worked in uh, what you might describe as the shadows in Washington and done you know, some pretty important work. I think you know, the early years in the campaign finance work, uh, a lot of people you know, in the country at least didn't really follow what you were doing. And there seem to be areas in um, criminal justice reform, mental health, that would appear to be those kind of issues. Um, but do those represent opportunities for even now for Democrats and Republicans to come together and kind of rebuild some of those bipartisan muscles? I'm hopeful on some of the issues that are a little bit below the radar. Um, and that includes criminal justice reform and mental health uh, reform. And as you know, I've been uh, engaged in those issues um, not because that was my specialty, it hasn't been, but out of a personal tragedy. Um, you know, losing a son after a 10 year struggle with serious mental illness, um, trying to find a way when you cope with that kind of unspeakable tragedy to uh, find some meaning in it. Um, actually the phrase that Joe Biden used, and I will tell you that when my son died, uh, Joe Biden was then vice president, this was January of 2015, he called uh, right afterwards and spent an hour on the phone with me and my wife and my other son, um, gave me his private phone number, um, kept in touch, uh, was quite remarkable. But he said, you know, with the loss of his children, that you need to find a way to turn grief to purpose. And so we've tried to do that. And I've gotten engaged in these issues. And in the process, what I found is that uh, this double set of issues, criminal justice and mental health that are tied together in a lot of ways, actually have bipartisan uh, opportunities. And so among other things, I managed to work with Roy Blunt uh, and Debbie Stabenow in the Senate to try and open up more beds uh, for people suffering from mental health crises. And I worked uh, with Representative Murphy when he was in office, a Republican on a, a, the major bill that became the 21st Century's Cures Act, and with Fred Upton, uh, who was the uh, Republican chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee in the House uh, at the time. And I'm hopeful that we'll be able to do more now, especially since we've had all of these terrible uh, tragedies uh, that include George Floyd's uh, murder, Daniel Prude, uh, person in a mental health crisis in Rochester, New York, basically choked to death by police um, to uh, find some bipartisan agreement. On some of the other issues, on campaign finance reform or on broader democracy reform, that's a harder sell. And, uh, and, I, and yet I think that if we don't make changes in these areas, we're, we're not gonna be able to recapture that sense of two parties with different ideologies but with a common sense of purpose and working together. Uh, I was uh, mentioning to you just a little while ago before we started that one of the things I observed today is that the best way to bring the Republican party back to being a problem solving party is to pass HR1, which is the big democracy reform bill to make voting easier for Americans. Because if you know that you can't rely on suppressing votes or conspiracy theories or you know, getting your base uh, just all riled up because lots more people are gonna be voting, you have a need to compete for a majority. And that's how 
uh, a party becomes a problem solving one. You're not gonna use wild rhetoric um, uh, that is designed to drive a wedge between different groups of voters. You're gonna try and adapt your philosophy for Republicans, a conservative one, to meet the challenges that we have out there, including the stark economic inequality and, and all of the issues, including, by the way, what's gonna be a, an exploding mental health crisis in the aftermath of COVID for all these people who've been stuck in their homes, all the kids who haven't been able to have the social interactions that come with school that are a part of, of uh, growing and uh, all of the domestic violence that takes place when people are enclosed for a period of time. Um, you know, if, if you can't begin to address those as a society, even if you offer different points of view, if you can't address the climate change issue by saying, no, we should have market uh, uh, solutions as opposed to government uh, mandated solutions and have the debate around that rather than whether there is a crisis at all, then we're gonna have enormous trouble as a society for future generations. So there are some rays of hope out there but right now we don't have a consensus on some of the other things, including the, you know, the fundamentals of the integrity of the election system. Yeah. We've got to do something about that. And thank goodness you at the Humphrey School have been working on those issues of election integrity and providing a lot of the basis for what we can do to reform it. Thank you for that plug. Uh, Mr. Mondale, um, you really provide a model for this kind of bipartisan work that Norm Ornstein is talking about back in the um, uh, 1960s and to the 70s, you worked pretty closely with Republicans. I think the most striking example are civil rights legislation, uh, which required Republican support in order to pass. You were the lead on the Fair Housing Act, which is a historic piece of legislation. And there your allies included Republican leaders. Do you think that era when you saw Republicans and Democrats working with you is something that we can draw on for inspiration and perhaps some lessons? Yes, I do. I think, I think uh, we, we've had a short-term uh, downturn in that spirit, but I think it'll snap back. It, it's, it's the only way to go. It's the only thing that gets things done. The rest is just full of misery and, and uh, victimhood. And, and that's why I think it's gonna work. Thank you, sir. Um, Norm, you're usually a fairly, I'd say balanced um, uh, writer, someone that I like to read because you're, you're, you're reason oriented. And, but you wrote a piece as you often do in the Washington Post about two weeks ago. The title of it is, if Republicans won't risk defeat to tell the truth, Trump will own their party. And you go on and you name names of some very prominent Republicans who've recently retired or are still in office, um, some of whom have actually now announced they won't run for reelection, and you'd go after them. You describe them as evading the bigger debate about the future of the Republican Party. And essentially, I think you're saying they don't have the guts to stand up for what they what they believe in and what you've seen in, in observing them. Absolutely. And that includes, of course, the, the trigger for the piece was Rob Portman uh, of Ohio announcing that he would not run for re-election. 
but I'd felt the same way about uh, Bob Corker of Tennessee who retired and Jeff Flake of Arizona, both of whom I'd become quite good friends with and spent a lot of uh, time with and admired greatly as uh, individuals, um, but who just didn't wanna take it anymore. And for, for Flake, it was because in Arizona, uh, you know, the Republican party, this is the same Republican party that just censured Cindy McCain and the governor uh, Ducey for uh, standing up for a fair election. Um, but, you know, Jeff Flake, who's as conservative as anybody that I know, was going to get pounded in the election uh, because of his criticism of Donald Trump. But, you know, in leaving and in saying, I don't even want to risk the defeat, um, what you're doing is taking people who inherently are the kinds of people you want in public life, whose goal is to solve problems, who understand that you've got to do this within a set of fundamental norms that you try and operate under what we call the regular order, what the wonks call, um, and saying that because of the enormous pressures inside their own party and the fear of being shunned or excommunicated if you stick around and hold to those principles, it's just better to bail out. And what that does is it leaves the playing field to the worst of us and the worth of them. And I, you know, I have to say, Larry, that it's been dismaying to me to see people who I have admired, frankly, showing a level of moral cowardice in not sticking up, not just because they fear their own voters, and that's a core part of it, but also because they don't want to go back home. And, you know, when they're playing golf with their buddies or uh, having a dinner with a spouse and a few couples, have the people they have been close to looking at them like apostates. But, you know, you can see here and there, you might find a vote where, yeah, you don't want to uh, buck your party. But when you don't stand up, when it involves the fundamental fabric of our democracy and the uh, fundamentals of corruption in the process, it's just hard to take. And the ones you hope would turn around uh, and be that way are the ones who are bailing out. This piece, and, and if you haven't read it, I'd recommend it if um, you want to read something bracing. Use words like capitulation, failure, um, um, evading responsibility. You, you do make the case, though, and I want to make this clear. This is not a partisan argument. In fact, yeah. the case you make is we need a conservative, um, constitutionally grounded Republican Party. This is not a partisan case. It is straight out you know, I'd say con law and, and really uh, patriotic in the institutional norms that you're making. And I want to just ask you, we have seen Republicans standing up and taking a hit. Liz Cheney uh, stood up in, in the House and voted for impeaching the president. She's taken quite a hit. And then we saw a very large number of Republicans in the House voting to keep her in her position We've seen Mitt Romney and, and others in the Senate taking a strong stand. Does that give you, you know, some uh, reason to be, to be hopeful or at least to be able to say, here is a conscience. Here are people who are going to be conservative and they're also going to be bound by the Constitution and the norms of a workable democracy. There are uh, some role models out there, but boy, there are very few of them. Uh, unfortunately, in office. 
there are more of them out of office. And I've been you know, quite impressed with the number of very conservative people who are not office holders, some of them former office holders, who've stood up and said, this cannot be our Republican party. And you know, to your larger point, Larry, our system is not gonna work if we don't have two problem solving oriented parties. It's not gonna be a moderate Republican party. The nature of the party now is gonna be very conservative, more conservative perhaps than it's ever been in history. But you can be conservative and wanna solve all the problems uh, just as you can find that on the other side of the aisle. And you know, a one party system where the other party is relegated to the permanent minority or where it sees its only hope of being in the majority is manipulating the rules is not what we need or want. I want a strong Republican party. I want one that can really compete with all voters in America. And we have a few people in office, Adam Kinzinger, another house member who fits that picture, who's willing to stand up uh, against the tide, but very few along with Mitt Romney in the Senate that I've seen so far. And uh, if they prevail in 2022 and win back the House, Senate, or both with the same kind of approach of obstructing as much as they can and delegitimizing that we saw in 2010 and 2014, we're going to be further away from where we need to be. And I fear that Donald Trump is going to be a pernicious force uh, along the way. Um, I don't take seriously that he will run again in 2024 uh, or will seriously run again. I think he will run again because it's a great money-making opportunity and because it keeps him in the public limelight and keeps some of his family members there. But it pulls the party in the wrong direction, away from genuine problem solving and away from trying to find a broader uh, coalition that includes minorities, uh, people of color, that, it, that really does focus on some of the problems of economic inequality and the real challenges that we have as a country. Great. Um, we've had a number of questions here, some of which I've been incorporating, um, but I wanna um, come back to the filibuster because there are many questions about it. And a number of folks are just asking for very clear description of what you're proposing. Um, and you know, your idea is rather than requiring 60 votes to continue, you would flip the numbers and it would be 40 votes to continue. What role would that play? Because people are doing the math and they're, they're not really clear about that. So the way it works now, uh, once somebody invokes a filibuster in effect, denying unanimous consent to move forward, the way you have to end debate and move forward is you need three-fifths of the Senate, the entire Senate, that means now 60 votes, and to do so. And the burden then is on the majority. And we had this uh, one occasion in particular, a vivid one uh, on the Affordable Care Act where Democrats had just 60 members. Every single Republican was gonna vote to uh, continue the filibuster. And Robert Byrd, almost literally on his deathbed had to be wheeled into the Senate to cast that 60th vote uh, as he shouted at his colleagues, shame, shame, shame. Uh, the, the intention of the filibuster, getting back to what uh, we were talking about earlier, was uh, at least the ethos was supposed to be, this is when a minority, and not necessarily a partisan minority, believes so strongly in a, 
a point of view that they would try and do what they could to bring the process to a halt and use their power of persuasion by speaking at length and even by going round the clock to highlight why they felt this way. And as long as they had that stamina, they could keep things from happening. And it would mean that the Senate would act as a kind of break on immediate public emotion. It wasn't about putting the burden on the majority and giving the minority the ability to veto everything. So the idea here is to flip the numbers around so that the burden is on the minority. Now, just to give you one example, if you go back to the era of the uh, 50s and 60s, the, when the major filibusters, in fact, almost all of them were about civil rights uh, issues, and it was uh, segregationists, mostly Southern Democrats, blocking the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1957 and the Voting Rights Act of 1964 and the Civil Rights Act of 1965 by filibustering, they would go round the clock. And it meant that senators, especially those who were in that minority, would have to sleep on cots and would have to show up and would have to maintain their position on the floor. And it was a, you know, it took a lot of physical stamina to do that. Try and do a around the clock session now and the minority doesn't have to be there. They only need a couple of members because all you have to do is make sure they don't do some unanimous consent agreement that would uh, move to a vote and to make sure they, that they're there, the majority, because you need a quorum to keep it going. So it's just a, a meaningless kind of thing. I wanna to return to putting the burden on the minority. They're the ones that have to show up. They have to be on the floor. They have to be ready to get up at four in the morning and go to the floor to cast a vote. Okay, so the Ornstein proposal is, let's flip the numbers, 40 um, have to vote and actually be in the chamber uh, to, uh, to carry on this filibuster and the kind of conversation and and national public debate that Mr. Mondale's talked about for all these years. I wanna move on, there's uh, questions about um, the Biden agenda. Um, President Biden has proposed a $1.9 trillion um, coronavirus relief uh, proposal. We know that in the, in the wings is going to be a very substantial economic um, uh, revival uh, relief uh, legislation. It's gonna include infrastructure. Um, the question is to you, Norm, uh, what can President Biden accomplish in Congress? Is this all dead on arrival or can Democrats with as thin a margin as imaginable actually pass this? So, uh, you know, it's interesting now because we have this other tool uh, that's reconciliation. Um, it, what was once an obscure budget procedure, but that requires an expedited up or down vote in the Senate with a majority, simple majority required to pass it. And it involves budget related matters by saying we can do this with our 50 Democrats because we have the votes for this $1.9 trillion package. But going to Republicans and saying this train is going to pull out of the station and you've got a chance to get on board. And we can make this work without reconciliation by getting 60 votes. If you're willing to work with us on what would be not you know, a huge concession of taking it down to a third of what we are asking for, which is what the Republican proposal was. But for example, 
targeting where the relief would go to individuals more. So it's not going to people who don't really need it. And maybe moving away from a, a $15 minimum wage right now as a part of this package, maybe even doing a more modest increase in the minimum wage with say what many Republicans have supported an increase uh, in uh, the uh, uh, child support payments and uh, the uh, uh, perhaps a wage subsidy for employers so there wouldn't be as many job losses. Um, and here's your chance to compromise, actually trying to provide the compromise. In the absence of that, which I think we're not gonna see, we're likely to see probably a package that comes close to the 1.9 uh, trillion get through. Then the question becomes, as you've said, what follows? Uh, we don't have as a part of this package, the deeply needed infrastructure uh, program that, you know, I mean, frankly, it was a puzzle to me that for the entire Trump presidency, every week was infrastructure week, but they never pushed an infrastructure plan. And there you have bipartisan agreement, but that's gonna mean probably another trillion dollars. And, uh, we've got, um, you know, a lot of other areas, including the tax reform that uh, Biden wants that would help at least uh, in some measure to pay for this. We have the deep needs to do health care reform, including, of course, the great push to create a public option uh, in the Affordable Care Act, or maybe even just to move Medicare down to having it available to those of 50 and older or 55 and older. Some of those things you can do in reconciliation, but as you said, you have 50 Democrats and they range from Bernie Sanders to Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. And you, if you try and push too much into this agenda, you're not gonna be able to keep your 50 and it's not likely you're gonna get Republicans. So it's gonna take some really uh, subtle and delicate political maneuvering to accomplish a fair amount there. The other place, of course, that he's already turned is uh, executive orders. And there, it's not as effective as legislation. It's not as long lasting. And there's a concern about what the Supreme Court will do to curb his power on that front. But already we've seen some major changes in the uh, Trump policies, at least. Not enough, I think, to get Democrats on the left excited, but a beginning of something. Um, but a whole lot, of course, like democracy reform that can't be done as long as you uh, have the filibuster as currently constituted in place. Norm Ornstein, um, during the past week uh, or so, uh, Larry Summers, uh, who was Treasury Secretary under President Barack Obama, has come out, talked about the risks and the possible serious uh, inflationary problems that could result from this kind of massive spending. You're a guy who's, you know, been fairly straightforward in talking about um, the need for fiscal responsibility. Is this a real concern? Is the debate over the fiscal the fiscal consequences or the possibility of them being just pushed under the rug because we have this kind of partisan tribalism that you've been describing? How does, how does that, the real world um, fit into this? So we have to be concerned about uh, fiscal responsibility in, at some level. Um, I don't want to have this though become one of those issues where you can push through a tax cut uh, that mostly benefits the wealthy 
for a $1.9 trillion uh, hit on the debt uh, and then turn around and say, oh, but now it's time for fiscal responsibility. Uh, I wanna mention one thing here, Larry. Um, my friend, Gene Ludwig, uh, who was controller of the currency under uh, President Clinton, um, has created an institute to look at a number of economic issues. And what he points out is that while the nominal unemployment rate right now is 6.7%, which doesn't seem all that high, the way the Bureau of Labor Statistics counts unemployment, if you are in a part-time job and you're working an hour a week or an afternoon a week, you're counted as employed. If you're making $20,000 a year or less in a job, you're counted as employed. And if you take into account the fact that those things shouldn't be in the same category as people working 40 hours a week and making a living wage, the actual unemployment rate is probably over 25%. And for African-Americans and Hispanic Americans, it's over 30%. We have a real economic crisis on our hands because of COVID and that's gonna get worse before it gets better. And a lot of jobs are not gonna come back and doing something now to really get that economy in a better position is important. And with interest rates low as they are now, for example, I would do a big infrastructure package and have 50 year infrastructure bonds at what would be a very low interest rate. And you lock in those rates and you're gonna get economic growth. One of the things that Larry Summers talked about was his complaint that this package doesn't have the investments in infrastructure, but you can do that in a subsequent bill. And I don't take Larry's uh, criticism as seriously as I might have otherwise, because I do believe that the risks of going small and we saw that with what was a much more limited stimulus package right after the financial crisis in 2008 that Larry helped to bring about, um, didn't get the economy moving nearly as well or as fast as it could have. I'd rather risk going a little bit bigger when interest rates are low. And uh, so I'm on the side of going big right now and getting some money out there. I will say one of the things that I also uh, try to signal today, one out of seven families in America is food insecure. They don't have enough food on the table for their families. That's, a, that's just a shocking scandal in this society. If money goes out in these checks to individuals, and it turns out that some of it is gonna to go to people who don't really need it, and you happen to be those people, send those checks to your local food bank. So That's where they ought to go. So in other words, uh, Larry Summers is worrying, is worrying about the risk of inflation, you're worrying about the persistence of very steep economic deprivation. Um, and um, you know what's striking to me is just Larry Summers, very prominent Democrat um, and prominent on Wall Street as well. He's having so little impact on the Democrats. It's almost as if um, it's being heard, but it's not really registering uh, if you go back to the Clinton years or the Obama years, if Larry Summers blew this horn, it would have an impact on some number of Democrats. Not now. He seems to be almost uh, irrelevant. 
You know, uh, one uh, larger observation, going back to the Obama years, I think the biggest mistake that Barack Obama made in his first two years was putting Larry Summers and Tim Geithner in uh, at the helm of those economic policies. Geithner insisted that it would be a bad thing if any of the uh, financial people who had gotten us into this mess um, ended up being directly singled out and punished. And we didn't take a single one of them. And that helped to engineer the Tea Party revolution and uh, the Occupy Wall Street, but the Tea Party revolution. This notion that the people who suffered lost their homes or saw their savings disappear because their homes were dramatically cut uh, back in value or lost their jobs, looked out there and said, you know, the miscreants who got us into this were let off the hook entirely and got away with big bonuses. That triggered the populism, the anger at all elites that helped to bring us a Donald Trump. And I think there's a different approach now that we see, a look at some of this kind of criticism with more skepticism, and I think right now appropriate uh, skepticism. People are hurting. And you know, I grew up in the Minnesota of Hubert Humphrey and Walter Mondale. I believe that our first obligation is to take care of those who are in need and can't help themselves. And right now, the needs are enormous and we need to step up and we can challenge the fiscal uh, issues at a subsequent point. But when you're drowning, you don't uh, look at uh, uh, you know, what you're gonna be wearing to the prom. Uh, you look at making sure that you get out of that water and that you're intact. Mr. Mondale, um, <laughs> I see you're applauding. Um, you you uh, fought uh, for many years in Congress and then uh, you were in the White House for um, policies that would help those who were down and out, create opportunities and assistance. Is the Democratic Party today moving closer to where you were in the 1970s and 80s? I, I hope so, I can't tell. There's been this strange couple of year conf conflict uh, up and down system here where they seem to be talking about that issue that you brought up, you know, just well, the rich people need to take care of themselves. We need to take care of the rich people. Uh, that 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 can go away as soon as it wants to, as far as I'm concerned, because people are hurting and and they need help, and uh, that's what our great universities are for here to help. Uh, and and I hope we can get that straightened out. Great, thank you, sir. Um, uh, Norm, we've got a lot of questions here. We've been kind of picking up on some of them, but let me just ask you, since you were talking about the Biden agenda, um, you see much chance of immigration reform? That's gonna be a harder one because you really can't do much immigration reform through reconciliation. What I would say is, if we changed the filibuster rule the way I'm talking about, and you brought up a Dreamer Act and some uh, the elements of the comprehensive immigration bill that in an earlier point passed the Senate with 75 votes, and you had a bunch of Republicans who filibustered it, I'd go round the clock on that one. 
And I think because it's extraordinarily popular in the country and you can bring the public attention to it, you could prevail. I do think we have an opportunity to legislate on the dreamer issue. Um, and on some of the others, you know, most of what's in the Biden agenda is extraordinarily popular. Um, if we change the filibuster rule uh, the way we're talking about, we could get universal background checks and maybe even a little bit more in terms of uh, gun uh, control. Maybe we could get the John Lewis Voting uh, Rights Act. But otherwise, broader immigration reform, we're still in the midst of this populist move that is anti-immigration. Um, and I will say one of the great challenges that Obama, uh, that Biden faces is in the Department of Homeland Security where the culture has become a nativist and cruel culture. And uh, changing that is gonna be extremely difficult. Um, and you know, getting, weeding out some of these agents who were gleeful in the uh, uh, child separation uh, area and who have told some of these uh, people who are detained that if they uh, resisted deportation, they'd put them into rooms with people who were COVID positive. You can't let things like that go unpunished or undealt with. And, uh, you know, finding ways to do it within the confines of the civil service laws, that's a real challenge, but it's, an, it's just as important, I think, as getting a new immigration bill right now. We've got, as I said, a number of questions. So we're gonna go a little more quickly here, yeah. uh, Mr. Ornstein. Um, Rich Lusky says he's in favor of the $1.9 trillion package, but, how do we address the growing national debt? You didn't talk about that. So we've had periods with large national debt before. It is easier to deal with when you have extremely low interest rates. Here, I do believe that while this package is more a triage package, and while certainly a part of it is that you have to uh, uh, make sure that the money goes to people who will spend it instead of saving it so that it can go for some economic activity and growth. That's where the next package of infrastructure reforms will actually add jobs and provide some economic growth that will help to ameliorate these issues. Money out there means that people are gonna spend it and then people are gonna be taxed and that will help on that front. Tax reform that puts more of a burden on the rich. Remember that the 1% have gained tremendously during the pandemic. They've added to their uh, wealth enormously. Um, so making them pay a little bit of that back will help on the debt as well. But what we really need to do is make sure that we issue this long-term debt at a very low interest rate, which will make all of this more manageable before we can turn around to a kind of fiscal austerity, which is not appropriate right now. Um We've got a number of uh, things that you've been talking about for years. Um, and I have to say the first one is something you talked about, I don't know, a decade, two decades ago. And it's on the, how do we maintain the continuity of our government? When I first heard you talk about it, I thought this is a great issue. I'm on your side, but it won't happen because it doesn't seem like a high priority. After January 6th, I think everyone who's got their eyes wide open is thinking, okay, how do we handle a situation in which possibly we could have lost the, you know, a lot of members of Congress because of marauding bandits who had, you know, chanting, hanging the vice president and so forth. 
So what's your proposal? Do, do we need to do something about maintaining the legislative, executive, and judiciary? Yes, we do. And our Continuity of Government Commission, which we created in the aftermath of 9-11, um, has been kind of moribund. We're uh, going back into action with it. One of our co-chairs will be Donna Shalala, um, who was, uh, of course, a cabinet officer, an original member of the commission, and in Congress who's now out. Uh, we're going to find a Republican co-chair very soon. We're going to look at all three branches again. COVID made a difference. We have to look at what can happen if members can't get to Washington, and you still need to have them and being able to vote. We need to look at presidential succession. The 25th Amendment um, has big flaws. If both the president and vice president had been incapacitated with COVID, we have no succession plan in place. And the court uh, is an issue itself. So we're going to be grappling with all of those. Fortunately, there's a House Committee on the Modernization of Congress chaired by Derek Kilmer, a Democrat from Washington, a very bipartisan group. And they're going to take up this issue in a big way. So I'm a little more hopeful than I have been in two decades. And folks, if you want to see Norm Ornstein at work, working across party lines, trying to build up our, our government, this is a great issue. It's not something you're ever going to hear in the evening news, but wow, is it important? And if you have any doubt about it, just go look at the news footage from January 6th. Um, Norm, another big issue, and Mr. Mondale worked on this for years, is the issue of accountability, making sure that our government does what the people expect of it. Um, and one of the great innovations has been our inspector generals. Um, there was, a, I would say, a, a unprecedented challenge to that by Donald Trump, who fired inspector generals, left positions uh, open. Could you describe what is the purpose of inspector generals? And is there a way to restore their nonpartisan credibility? And let me start by giving kudos to Fritz Mondale. The Carter administration did more in terms of government ethics and trying to create accountability than I think any other uh, since uh, perhaps the Teddy Roosevelt era. We had the Civil Service Reform Act uh, and the Inspectors General Act uh, among them. And Inspectors General were supposed to be independent actors within agencies who would make sure that the laws were faithfully executed and that corrupt acts would not go unnoticed or unpunished. Um, but it became easier, as Trump showed us, to manipulate this process because presidents could remove, uh, they're supposed to be for cause, Inspectors General, who were supposed to be nominated uh, by the president and confirmed by the Senate. He could create vacancies and then fill them without having to go through a confirmation process using the Vacancies Act and abusing it and getting rid of inspectors general who were actually gonna try and hold his own administration accountable. And now I think we're gonna see a different approach and one that I hope will pre uh, preserve the independence of these figures, make sure that they're professionals, but also get rid of any of those who are uh, not doing the jobs the way they're supposed to be done. It's a delicate balance, but I think it's a high priority. And at the same time, we need to reform our ethics process to make sure that when you have actors who abuse that process, insider trading or uh, uh, you know, violating other elements, uh, we have uh, right now, for example, uh, a loophole where the, uh, in, uh, the postmaster general, DeJoy, who has 
millions and millions in stock in a company that is a direct competitor with the Postal Service, divested it by giving it to his adult children. Uh, that's not an effective way of gaining independence. And so we need a real overhaul of all of those ethics actions, but we can use as a template what Fritz Mondale and Jimmy Carter did uh, to their great and enduring credit uh, in the 1970s. Mr. Mondale, does that embarrass you to hear Norm saying that? It's waiting for more. <laughs> I, I, you know, being with you is such an honor every time uh, that I'm able to do it. Um, as I said, I grew up venerating you and Hubert and Orville Freeman uh, and uh, Art Naftalin and a party that stood up for what was right and promoted the values that make this society what it is. I get emotional uh, even thinking about it. But, you know, you've just been uh, a jewel for Minnesota and for the uh, people of this country. Uh, and, uh, and I say it every time I get the chance. God bless you, I really appreciate that. We, we made a great team, I think. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm sorry, uh, sorry Hubert's not here to hear about it. Yeah. And Mr. Mondale, when you were in Congress um, and then in the White House, as Norm was saying, you worked on the issues of accountability uh, with regards to even um, the spying by intelligence services and then uh, working on the budget process, which surprised some liberals that you would take such interest in it. And then uh, series reforms, as Norm was mentioning in the White House, it's truly historic. Um, Norm, I've got one last question for you. Um, and um, it's from one of our friends in the audience. Mr. Ornstein, are you sleeping better since January 20th? Uh, and the answer is yes, I am, uh, but I'm not sleeping well. The challenges are still immense. I really do believe that if uh, Donald Trump had won the election, or if the election had been much closer, uh, we might've had a different uh, dynamic going on now. And everything that we believe in as a free society, I think would have been under enormous challenge. Um, I mentioned before uh, that the relationship that I had with Joe Biden, the empathy that he showed to me when I lost a child, and Fritz knows the pain that comes when you lose children, uh, there's nothing quite like it. Um, the people around Biden are professionals. Ron Klain is, is uh, just the perfect person to have as a chief of staff. Um, if you watch the uh, press briefings now with Jen Psaki, um, it's just as good as it gets. Um, you know, the fact that we're not uh, raising everyday questions uh, uh, about uh, uh, any of the terrible things, including corruption uh, that we could be talking about, those are all very good. The opportunities that exist now to turn things around in some of these areas like immigration, um, to deal with issues of race in a more open fashion, the enduring uh, divisions that we have in the society that have gotten worse. The, the fact that we're gonna have people who will focus on the problems and look for ways of solving them, who will restore alliances in NATO and elsewhere, um, and take on Russia uh, where it needs to be taken on. I'm heartened by all of that. But we all need to be very cognizant of the fact that we have this deep 
set of problems that go beyond dysfunction in our political process. We have these deep divisions in our culture that are not going away. We have the challenges of a uh, media and social media that uh, leave people in different universes. And the fact that so many people believe that Trump won the election or believe in these bizarre conspiracy theories, and it's not just uh, people who are deranged to begin with, uh, it's uh, very, very troubling when that happens. Disinformation and misinformation are not going away. And I will add, finally, we have continuing structural challenges in our system. You know, right now, um, there isn't much more than a third of Americans who elect more than two thirds of the Senate. As I mentioned frequently, by 2040, 30% of Americans will elect 70 senators. And they're not gonna represent the diversity of the country or the economic uh, vibrancy and dynamism in the country. And we're gonna have a continuing sense of illegitimacy in a system, an electoral college. It would have been easy to imagine Biden winning the electoral uh, or winning the popular vote by 7 million and losing the electoral college. The more that happens, the more there's this sense of illegitimacy. We have a Supreme Court that's let partisan gerrymandering run rampant over the country and that's gonna get worse and they'll allow voter suppression. All of those things still keep me up at night and keep me energized to try and do something that we need to do to restore the kind of governance. You know, there's nothing pretty about governance. It wasn't pretty in the 60s and uh, when Fritz Mondale and Hubert Humphrey fought segregation and fought for civil rights. It wasn't pretty when we had all of those challenges in the late 60s that Larry mentioned earlier, uh, including the impeachment of Richard Nixon. And we didn't know if our system would survive back then and the Vietnam War and all of the other divisions that we've had in the society. But we found ways to develop bipartisan agreement on the big challenges we faced internally and externally. And that's what we have to get back. And all of us have a responsibility to do what we can to help create a better atmosphere. Mr. Mondale, can you agree with that? I'd like to end by asking him to come back again soon. Yes. I wanna do that and I wanna do that in person. Uh, one of my great hopes, Fritz, is that I can be there and give you a big hug. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be present for the event. Okay. <laughs> Um, thank you so much for, for participating. Thank you, Vice President Mondale and Norm Ornstein.